Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And that is on page 1014 in the Pew Bible. And we're actually going to read verses 3 through 12 here in a minute. God's people have long been marked by their joy. And we heard songs today about joy. And we had scripture readings that were shared in prayers, in the opening, in the, um, the, the whole congregation read together. And they were all different than the ones that I have here for joy, which are all over the Psalms. Um, Psalm 32.11 says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So the Psalms instruct us to rejoice in God. And then the psalmists also testify of their own experience of personal joy in God. Psalm 43, 3-4, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Jesus himself taught that he came to bring us joy. John 15, verse 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And Paul informs us in Romans 14, verse 17, that the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the message was that they preached throughout all of the known world was righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And it is no surprise that the early church in the book of Acts, day by day, were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes with glad and generous hearts. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 through 23. And when our Christian life is complete, we will enter the joy of our Master, Matthew 25, verse 21. So joy is supposed to mark the Christian life, but some of us may think that joy is unrealistic for today's dark age, for today's polarized society. We live in a day when evil is called good and good is called evil, and our world is increasingly antagonistic to God. Everywhere we look, there are swift cultural changes, changes that threaten our very sense of who we are. Uh, some of us noticed the news this week of politicians cheering as they passed a bill that permits the murder of unborn babies up through the ninth month. How sickening and terrifying. There are other injustices that are not addressed, too, that are just as tragic. And now, more than ever, following Jesus has consequences. If you speak out, you might be shouted down. 
If people know you are a Bible believer, they may assume that you are a hater. Things seem like they are just going to get worse. Others among us maybe are weighed down with other trials today. Trials that threaten our joy. Loved ones and friends are at death's door and we don't know what we'll do without them. Or perhaps even more tragically, loved ones and friends have betrayed us or hurt us, have abandoned us, or perhaps even abandoned the faith. Some may be weighed down with their own failures and besetting sins, relationship problems or challenges, challenges at work or at finding work. Following Christ is a lot harder than they thought, and they may be tempted to throw in the towel. The passage that we're going to read this morning speaks to people with these same concerns and even more. The people that Peter wrote to lived as exiles and strangers in an antagonistic society that would very soon break out into a full-fledged, fiery persecution against Christianity. Some of them had lost their jobs. Others were being slandered. Some were trapped in a relationship that offered no hope, a master who did not understand Christianity, a husband who did not allow them to worship, the wife to worship. Yet Peter said they were rejoicing even as they were suffering. Something about their joy proved to be an unshakable joy. And I trust we will be encouraged today as we read the text together. So let's go to the text, but first let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we need your help. I need your help. There's so much to cover. I just pray that your Holy Spirit would use the words to meet the needs that are here. Lord, quicken our hearts to appreciate, to understand, and to gravitate to your word. And may it meet our needs today, we pray in Jesus' name. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through, we'll actually read through verse 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you 
in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So my title this morning is An Unshakable Joy, and I apologize ahead of time as much as I tried to focus on one main point. There's just too much here to make it just one point. Spurgeon I read several of his sermons on this passage, and just the first three verses that we read, he called a string of pearls. And really, all of this is a string of pearls. This section, most commentators call it praise for salvation, which is an easy way to describe it. It's all one idea, and it's just praise upon praise upon praise, benefit upon benefit upon benefit. All of these are reasons for joy for us to be rejoicing in. And I take my direction here from verse 6. In this, you rejoice. And that connects back to verses 3 through 5. In this, you rejoice. And then the rejoicing is during trials. And then the rejoicing comes back again in verse 8. And so I think joy is the main theme in this section. So we're going to see if you want to take notes... um, The source of our joy, verses 3 through 5. The sorrow in our joy, verses 6 through 7. Sweetness of our joy, verses 8 and 9. And the sharing of our joy, verses 10 through 12, if we have time. So we'll begin. The source of our joy, or the ground, or the basis of our joy, is in verses 3 through 5. The the first ground of our joy, or source of our joy, is new life. God caused us to be born again. And I love Peter's emphasis there that God is the one who caused us to be born again. Of course, no baby birthed themselves. Um, they, They need someone to birth them, and God birthed us. And how he did it, in verse 3, is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So in the resurrection, we are united with Christ... Romans 6 talks about that. And Christ's resurrection is the beginning of not just new life for us, but new creation for everything. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus inaugurated a new age. So we're living in the time between times, the ending of the old age and the beginning of the new age. He has come to bring new creation, and the beginning of that is within our hearts, our relationship with Christ, which is so new compared to the old covenant. And yet, it is still incomplete. It's still, we don't see him face to face. So there is more to come. It's, we're, we have an inaugurated, a begun new creation, but we've yet to see all of the fullness of it. So this new life that has been inaugurated by Christ's resurrection power has given us a new heart, a new beating heart, and it says that we have a living hope, a living hope. There is a new life within us. So that is one reason why, one blessing of salvation for which we have joy. And this new life leads to a new longing. 
So we have a new life and a new longing. Verse 4 says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So our living hope, hope is a confident expectation. It doesn't mean what we think of necessarily with the word hope. I hope it won't rain tomorrow, or I hope we don't get too much snow tomorrow. You know, I hope it's not going to be as cold as they say on Wednesday. That's kind of a wishful thinking that may or may not happen. That's not what the word means in the New Testament. It means a confident expectation of something that hasn't happened yet. It's basically another way of talking about faith. It's looking through the eyes of faith to something that is sure. So now that we have new life, our outlook has changed. We're not looking to see how we can advance ourselves uh, and be better than our peers and have a, a better car than the Joneses. Our outlook is now on this new inheritance. We have a new longing. We are looking to something greater than just this life. We're no longer citizens of this world, but citizens of a heavenly country. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. And then in 1 Peter 1, verse 1, he says that they are elect exiles of the dispersion. And in chapter 2, verse 11, he calls them sojourners and exiles. What is he talking about here? I think this is connected to our longing. Just like Israel was dispersed after being exiled from the promised land, so these Gentile believers were following God in a pagan land and living as sojourners. You've heard the song that, um, this is, that I'm just a passing through. I'm just passing through this world, waiting for my father's land. They were like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who in Hebrews 11, it says they were looking forward to the city whose designer and builder is God. They were strangers and exiles on the earth, seeking a homeland. They desired a better country, a heavenly one. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived in tents. They were exiles in the land. And Israel became exiles out of the land. And here we are as Gentile believers, most of us, we are exiles and sojourners, just like Peter says, we have a citizenship not of this world. We have an inheritance that is reserved in heaven. And this inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It can't be shaken by a stock market drop. It can't be shaken by government shutdowns or by invasion or by whatever terrible thing you can imagine. It's reserved in heaven for you, undefiled, uncorruptible. That is the source of our new longing. No matter what happens to us, we have our allegiance above, and we are not shaken by the things of this world. Therefore, we have joy. So another source of our joy, new life, new longing, is a new loyalty. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. There's this faith element, a loyalty to God. In fact, in verse 2, it says that we were elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father for obedience to Jesus Christ 
and for sprinkling with his blood. And I don't have time to explore it fully, but in Exodus 24, the Old Covenant had a statement where they read the Book of the Covenant, Exodus 24, 7 and 8. All the people said, we will obey the covenant. And then Moses sprinkled blood on them. And that's exactly what Peter's talking about here, the new covenant. We have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Hebrews talks about that a lot. And we celebrate it every month when we read the words that this is the new covenant in my blood that we act out. We have been sealed to Christ with a new covenant and we have pledged to obey him. Our obedience doesn't save us, but it is a mark of our covenant. We want to follow God. Our loyalty, our faith is in him and our loyalty is to our Savior. So there's a loyalty and a faith for our God, but we are also being shielded and guarded by God's power. The flip side of the covenant is God treats us specially. We are elect and we are his covenant people. Um, He is the one who is keeping us. Spurgeon said it like this. He said, the inheritance is kept for you and you are kept for the inheritance. Both aspects of that is God at work. Albert Barnes, an old-time commentator, said, God does not keep us by the mere exertion of power, but he excites faith in our hearts and makes that the means of keeping us. So if you read that, it's really important how it's worded. It says that you are, uh, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation. God's power is guarding you through faith, but God's the one doing it. So God is working faith in you. God is working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. So what I take this to mean is that eternal security does not mean we don't have to continue believing. The Bible does say that there are some who believe for a while and in time of testing fall away, Luke 8.13. True believers are those whose faith continues. Once saved, We are always saved, but it's those who have been truly saved. So once saved, always saved. Those who are truly saved will continue to believe because they are kept by God's power through faith. And that is an encouraging thing because our faith can waver and we can look and lean upon God to be the one to keep our faith strong. So because of our faith and our new life within us, Believers have a new longing and a new loyalty, and God even pledges to keep their faith strong, even as he keeps our heavenly inheritance sure. All of this results in a great joy, because it is in this that we rejoice. The joy of believers is based on the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, the last part of verse 5. The time when they finally reach that heavenly country. Joy indeed. So we are going to reach a heavenly country. We are being kept by God's power. We have a new loyalty that is generated by this new life in us. We have a new longing. Our hearts have changed. All of this is great. So therefore we rejoice. But 
it says, though, in this you rejoice, though, now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. I'm focusing on the word grieve. So the second point is sorrow in our joy. So we have a source for our joy, the salvation that we have, but we also have sorrow in our joy. So there's a few things that we can learn about trials here from verse 6 and 7 that I hope you will take to heart, especially if you're not in a trial today. This is the time to bank up this knowledge and reach into it later when harder and darker times come. The first thing to notice about trials is that they are periodic. Periodic. I'm going to have a bunch of P's for you here. So it says, though now, if necessary. So what he means is not everyone who's reading this is necessarily having trials this instant. So trial, everyone is not enduring a trial right now in this room. Not everyone is having a trial. And every minute of your life is not a trial of your faith. The Christian life is not an endless succession of bad experiences only. But from time to time, there are trials. And trials can seem to last forever when we are in the storm. But it is important to know and not to minimalize the fact that trials are periodic. And trials are also passing. So they seem to last forever when we're in them, but it does say for a little while. So we're grieved for a little while. Trials do not last forever. They are for a little while. And even those who are called to suffer until death find that this light momentary affliction is prepared for them an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, 2 Corinthians 4.17. That's not a contradiction. You can die in your trial, and it's still just a for a little while trial because eternity is forever, and this life is just a little while. So that can be a comfort for us. Our trials are for a little while. But also it says that there are various trials, and I'm going to use the P word of plentiful. There are all sorts of kinds of trials. By plentiful, I mean manifold or varied. Trials come in all shapes and sizes. Sometimes we read scripture and we think of trials or suffering as only being at the stake bound to a piece of wood, and so therefore none of the teaching of Scripture about trials and persecution really helps us in our day-to-day life at all. And that's a mistake. Trials come in a lot of different sizes. He, he dis- doesn't just talk about the fiery trial. Later, he will talk about fiery trials coming to the people that he's writing about, but it hadn't come yet. So trials come in many different shapes and sizes. I'm going to list you some of what Peter's audience was enduring that Peter considered to be a trial. I would say the life of a sojourner or an exile, especially in that society, was a trial. Uh, That's also in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. There's mistreatment by employers or masters. Chapter 3 talks about marriage strains. 
being um, married to an unbelieving person at that time, especially. Even today, that's a hard lot for people. Insults and evils done against them, chapter 3, verse 9. Slander, chapter 3, verse 16. All you have to do is open up Facebook and you can see plenty of that. Striving against their own sins and the passions of their flesh. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Chapter 2, verse 11 says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. As believers, we do have a war. Hebrews 12 talks about the struggle against sin. And that is a very real trial for us that unbelievers do not experience. Another trial is the fiery trial of persecution and perhaps martyrdom that it talks about in chapter 4, verse 12. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. And then enduring the attack of the devil, chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, the devil roaming around, prowling around, seeking whom he may devour, trying to make people shipwreck their faith. Um, The audience of James and Hebrews are similar to the audience of Peter. And in those books, other trials that were mentioned was poverty, the loss of property, and imprisonment. All of these things are various sorts of trials, many of which we experience today as well. So trials are periodic, passing, but they're plentiful. And then what may be very helpful to know is they are planned. Planned, verse 6, if necessary. Necessary for what? Necessary why? Because God determined that it should be necessary for you. Trials are necessary when God plans them for us. Now, in Peter, it does make a distinction. He goes out of his way to remind them and encourage them and make sure they're not actually causing their own suffering by being stupid, by doing things that they shouldn't have done and then causing shame on the name of Christ and actually suffering for that because they deserved it. Chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, among other places, our bad behavior and our bad mistakes can cause consequences in our lives. But God also plans other things to happen in our lives that are trials that can be a form of suffering for Christ's name that are not planned by us, but they're planned by Him. Trials don't surprise God. They shouldn't surprise us. They should be expected. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I haven't heard Benny Hinn talk about that or Joel Osteen. The health and wealth prosperity gospel preachers on TV, they don't mention these verses, but in Acts 14, what Paul did when he went and talked to every single church that he started on his missionary journey, he said that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14, 22. Jesus, of course, promised in the world you will have tribulation, John 16, 33. And in another place, he said, you're going to be in prison, and some of you they will put to death. That doesn't really sound like health and wealth prosperity if they just 
can believe it. It's theirs. No, trials are necessary. They are planned by God. And the reason that they're planned and necessary is because they are productive. And that is verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So trials are productive. God uses trials to prove the genuineness of our faith. That can be scary, but that is also encouraging. God is at work behind the dark storm cloud. He has a plan for what is happening to you. Now, John Calvin explained the metaphor so well that I'm going to quote him 500 years later. It's really helpful. He says, The argument here is from the less to the greater. For if gold, a corruptible metal, is deemed of so much value that we prove it by fire, that it may become really valuable, what wonder is it that God should require a similar trial as to faith, since faith is deemed by him so excellent? So even gold is put in a furnace to make it purer. Why isn't it that God should take our faith through the fire as well? In fact, Proverbs 17:3 says, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. God is in the heart-testing business, and he uses fire. The trial proves that our faith is genuine. In fact, that's what Peter is expecting. He's not doubting them, like, I wonder if your faith will really be genuine. He's expecting that the trial will result in the tested genuineness of their faith. The trial proves that our faith is genuine. It endures beyond the time of testing. It doesn't wither in the heat, but the plant of faith survives. Again, Luke 8, 13. And I want to take a moment to quote a passage from Charles Spurgeon's sermon on the trial of our faith, 1 Peter 1, 7. He's so eloquent and so helpful in understanding why faith needs to be trials, tr tried. This is Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher from the late 1800s. The very gift of faith is a hint to you that you will want it, that at certain points and places you will especially require it, and that at all points and in every place you will really need it. You cannot live without faith. For again and again we are told the just shall live by faith. And if God give thee great faith, my dear brother, thou must expect great trials. For in proportion as thy faith shall grow, thou wilt have to do more and endure more. Little boats may keep close to the shore as becomes little boats. But if God make thee a great vessel and load thee with a rich freight, he means that thou shouldest know what great billows are and should feel their fury till thou seest his wonders in the deep. Other scriptures testify also to the maturity that trials bring, and they connect joy to the trial. Romans 5, 3 through 5, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance 
produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So we rejoice in sufferings because suffering produces endurance, which produces character. James has the same idea. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If you want to be lacking in nothing in your Christian life, then you're not going to be lacking for trials. So one final word about trials, they're planned, they're productive, they're also praiseworthy. The result of trials is praiseworthy so that we may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials mature us and lead us to a faith that endures and is found praiseworthy in the presence of Christ, no less. If the faith matured by trial is praised at the revelation of Christ, we have an obligation to embrace the trials that bring us this maturity. If the proven faith is lauded in heaven, then the trial that brings about proven faith should be embraced here. But many of us don't embrace our trials. We respond to trials like a natural man does. I don't have time to belabor this point, but some of the reactions that we have as a natural man to trials is guilt. If only something else would have been done. Confusion. Why is this happening to me? Is God punishing me? Does God love me? Fear. What will become of me? Anger. How can they do that to me? Envy. Why aren't they suffering like me? Why are they have a smile on their face when I don't. Self-pity, won't somebody feel sorry for me? Hopelessness and despair, there's nothing I can do. I'm doomed, I'm trapped, I'll never get out. That's the natural response. But Peter says we should take joy in it because we see what God is doing in the trial. Instead, we should approach trials seeing that they are planned for our good. Trials are tests which only last a little while. In fact, there are even gifts in James 1, verse 17. They're, they qualify as something that the, come from the Father of lights, who is the great giver. Trials produce endurance and maturity. Trials reveal that our faith is genuine, which brings us great assurance and hope. And trials can be counted all joy. That's the Christian response to trials. So joy in trial is the sorrow of our joy. Now we look at the sweetness of our joy, verses 8 and 9 quickly. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Joy is returned to again here. The joy is sweet and this kind of joy here can be treasured through and can survive any trial. This joy can't be taken away. 
First point here, unseen yet known and loved. We don't see Jesus. We walk by faith and not by sight. We haven't seen him, but yet we know and love him. Since we believe in Christ, we can see and know him as he is by faith. And to know Christ is to love him. If we don't love him, we don't know him. We don't know who he is. And what's really interesting is being a Christian is sometimes described as loving the Lord. Not that this is an optional bonus on the Christian life, but this is what it means to be a Christian, is to love the Lord. Ephesians 6.22 says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love uncorruptible. And 1 Corinthians 16.22 goes even further. It says, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Love is something that will be present in a Christian's life because even though we don't see Christ, we know him, we believe in him, and therefore we can't help but love him. So unseen and then unspeakable, yet full of glory. Our joy is inexpressible. Some translations have that unspeakable. It can't be explained to unbelievers. They look at you strange. They don't understand how you can be having your face in a book or your head bowed in prayer and have tears coming out of your eyes and your heart overwhelmed by joy. To them, it is crazy. Our joy is inexpressible. Our experience is of wonder. And most of us have had times in our spiritual life of unutterable emotion and communion with Christ. This kind of deep joy lasts in trial and keeps us rooted to Christ in faith. It is a sweet taste of the Lord's goodness. Just a few verses later, 1 Peter 2 verse 3 says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He expects us to be growing in our faith if we have tasted that the Lord is good. And he is good. Amen. And then unfinished. Unseen, unspeakable, and unfinished, yet presently experienced salvation. He says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is not just the sense that if you have this joy now, you can bank on the fact that at the end of your life, when you reach heaven, you'll obtain the outcome. No, you're obtaining it now. In some way, you have it now. Charles Spurgeon said, you know, how much of our salvation do we have now? Well, how much of Christ do we have now? We believe in all of Christ. We have all of Christ. We are his. We have all of salvation now. So we are presently experiencing the salvation of our souls. Our souls have not yet finally been glorified. We still have the presence of sin in our lives, but we have been liberated from the power of sin. We can experience a foretaste of eternal salvation through our communion with Christ, which is sweeter and deeper only as we grow in our faith and our obedience. So this joy should lead to 
an experiential sanctification where we're becoming more and more conformed to the image of Christ. The last point we don't have a lot of time for, sharing of our joy. But I think it is helpful to see quickly. Verses 10 through 12 basically say that our joy is not shared with the Old Testament saints. It was a grace that was ours, that they were wondering what it meant. What exactly could it be? Our experience of salvation is similar to, but it is far superior than what the believers in the Old Covenant experienced. We have more information, and so our joy can be based in more knowledge. So it's not quite shared with the Old Testament saints. And then it's not shared with angels. There's a great song that Stephen Curtis Chapman sings that has a line, we know things angels only wish they knew. That's the kind of salvation we have, that angels are sitting there wondering about how can this be? What would it be like to be redeemed? But our joy is shared with Christ. In chapter 2, verse 21, it says that Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, Hebrews 12, 2. And he suffered for us, leaving us an example, and we can rejoice that we share Christ's sufferings, 1 Peter 4, 13. So the suffering and the joy together, Jesus already experienced that, and our suffering and our rejoicing is our sharing in what Christ has already done, our taking up the name Christian. And then finally, the sharing of our joy is shared by believers around the world. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So Peter is really speaking very broadly here. He, his letter is written to the whole area of Turkey today. And then he says throughout the whole world, this suffering is happening as well. And think about what's happening in China today, what's happening in other countries, in, in Islamic countries around the world. Other believers are having the same experience of suffering and yet having joy while they're grieved by various trials too. So, in conclusion, trials are challenging, and 1 Peter is not prescribing a glib joy that denies your true feelings. There is sorrow in trial, but a deeper joy can get us through. Peter calls us to cast our cares on God knowing that he cares for us, 1 Peter 5, 7. He calls on the elders to serve the flock faithfully to help them endure the trial, the first few verses of chapter 5. He wants the spiritually gifted to use their gifts for the benefit of all, 1 Peter 4. He calls us to follow the example of Christ and realize our privileged position as God's people. He grounds our joy ultimately in the great salvation work of God on our behalf. 
The day when Christ comes and we enter our eternal inheritance in heaven is the day when all wrongs will be righted and our suffering will be seen to have been worth it all. Our joy looks back to our salvation and it looks up to our eternal reward and it looks to the one who has saved us. It is Jesus that we worship with inexpressible joy full of glory. We trust in the very God who promised this from Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Why? Because a few verses later, fear not, for I am with you. Now perhaps some of you have never trusted Christ or you made a profession a long time ago and you don't have the joy in the communion that we talked about here. Perhaps trials are weighing you down and you seem to have no joy. I ask you to call out to God in faith. Cast your cares on him. Talk to any of our elders or any white-haired or older believers in Christ. Don't let this moment pass. Make sure that you have a genuine faith. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you that we can have joy in trial, joy in you, in fellowship with you. Oh, may our hearts warm with a greater communion with you. Lord, may we have a greater victory over our sin as we try to grow and work out our salvation. Lord, help us to see how privileged a status that we have, how much you have done for us, and realize that we are both kept by you and we have an inheritance that is kept for us. Lord, help us to know that trials are just for a little while and that they work in us a beautiful work of your grace. Lord, thank you for your salvation. Bless us as we go our way today in Jesus' name, amen.